All right. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Hopefully that was encouraging, exciting for you. Man, I think one of the most exciting things is to get to remember the transforming work of the gospel in people's hearts and lives and to celebrate that. And, and so if you are new or visiting, man, I hope you thought that was awesome. Uh, that's what we love to see happen here at River City, the transforming work of the gospel in people's hearts and lives. And so uh, we're glad for that. Uh, looking forward to opening God's word with you guys this morning. Uh, we, uh, we are studying uh, this semester or this, uh, this fall, really, we're studying uh, Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments. And uh, we framed our study of the Ten Commandments in the context of one of the most central storylines of the Bible, and that is, is that God is making a people for himself. It's one of the most central storylines of the Bible, that God's making a people for himself, a people who are made in his image and who reflect his nature and his character, who, who, who do that by living for the praise of his glory. And what we've seen is that throughout that storyline, one of the primary ways in which God's people reflect his nature and character, the, the way in which we do that is by obeying his commands. And that's because God's commands, they not only show us what God wants, they show us what he is like. You see, at the heart of the Ten Commandments isn't a list of rules to follow, but rather it's a description of what it looks like for God's image-bearing people to bear his image, to worship him, to reflect him, to glorify him by reflecting his nature and his character to the world. And as we've seen so far in our study of the Ten Commandments, the, the Ten Commandments are broken into two basic groups, two, two, two groups. The first four commands primarily have to do with the way that we relate to God. And the second four commands, they have to do primarily with the way that we relate to one another. And, and while it's usually this second group of commands that, that gets all of the attention, that gets the, the focus that we think is the most important, when, when Jesus is asked in Matthew 22 which commands he thinks are the most important, he responds by summing up the first com four commands like this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that worshiping God with your whole self, worshiping him supremely and exclusively and rightly and restfully, that that's actually the key, that's actually the foundation of all of the other four commands. And if you don't worship God, then you'll never be able to actually obey any of the other commands. And, and so the, we see that truth, uh, the truth is, is that how we relate to God fundamentally changes how we relate to one another. How we relate to God fundamentally changes the way how we relate to one another. We saw in the fifth command, how in the call to honor your parents, how that was ultimately about honoring God and then honoring our parents who got us sovereignly and put authority over us and others he has put in authority over us sovereignly. What we're doing is we're honoring him. And as we honor those even who don't deserve to be honored, we're honoring a God who is always worthy to be honored. In the sixth command, we saw how the fact that humanity is made in God's image is the basis for the, the priceless value that God places on human life and, and the call to, to protect it in all of its various stages and ways. And last week, we saw in the seventh command how the bounds God places on sexual intimacy are ultimately because sex is, is not ultimately about us, but ultimately it's about God. It's about reflecting and revealing something about his Trinitarian nature and his faithful character. You see, the reality is, is that how we view and relate to God changes everything about how we view and relate to one another. You see, the same is true this morning as we think about the Eighth Commandment. Simply this, the Eighth Commandment says, you shall not steal. And what I want to show you this morning as we study the Eighth Commandment is that this commandment is much more than simply just a prohibition against theft. It's much more than just a prohibition against 
taking things that aren't yours. Instead, it's actually an invitation into the very heart of our abundantly generous God. You see, to put it simply this morning, the Eighth Commandment isn't just about stealing, it's also about stewarding. You see, in the call that God gives us in this command is to live as stewards of his resources who not only abstain from stealing, from taking things that aren't ours, but who live generously in response to God's generosity towards us. And so, uh, towards that end, let's pray as we study God's word this morning. God, we are grateful for you. We come this morning with thankful hearts, uh, getting a chance to respond to you and to your word. But God, we also come with hearts that need you to, to shape them. God, I know my own heart this morning. God, I need you to continue to shape me by your word. And so God, as we study this morning, I pray that you'd be gracious by your spirit to empower me to teach rightly and with power, not because of myself, but because of you. God, we pray that you might graciously, again, by your spirit, enable our hearts to, to respond rightly to your word to be molded and shaped by your word. God, our hearts, they stand at odds with you. And so, God, we ask that by your grace that you might continue to shape us and mold us so that we look more and more like your son, Jesus, that we reflect your image, that we bear your character. God, and so we just say we can't do that on our own. We really need you. We pray that you would do that in us this morning. God, for our good, more than anything, we pray for your great glory. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning... Uh, our verse is short and sweet. We're in Exodus, 20, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. It just reads this way, you shall not steal. You see, uh, I don't know about you, but the past few weeks have been a little bit heavy. We've talked about the ideas of, of uh, honoring our parents, which can be really difficult sometimes. We've talked about the idea of, of murder and valuing life in all of its various ways. And we talked about how at the root that that has to do with hate in our hearts. And, and last week we talked about uh, sexuality and the, and the bounds that God places on that. And I don't know about you, but those topics are heavy in a lot of ways. And it's easy to approach this command this week and think, whew, good, a breather, right? Like, I haven't stolen anything in a while. I'm feeling good, right? Uh, a, a survey taken by the Barna Group uh, a number of years ago said that nearly 90% of evangelical Christians claim that they never break the Eighth Commandment. We think uh, the command to not steal is a really great word for thieves and for robbers, uh, for bank heists, for things along those lines, right? For the evil people on Wall Street who are taking everyone's stuff. We think it's for someone else but that it doesn't really have much to say for ordinary people. And, and while I think the, what the Eighth Command prohibits seems very simple, the reality is, is that like the rest of the commands, I think that we fail to understand what they really mean. You see, I've got some good news and some bad news for you this morning. The bad news is this. Our guilt and our sin under the Eighth Commandment is far worse than I think we realize. But the good news is also this, that the gospel is far better redeeming grace news than we have ever thought it might be. See, and so the question this morning is, as we begin, is what is the instruction that God is giving us in the Eighth Commandment not to steal? And we tend to think about stealing primarily just being about taking money or things that don't belong to you. And of course, that is absolutely included in the command not to steal, right? But it's about so much more than that. Martin Luther, uh, he wrote this. He says, we break the Eighth Commandment whenever we take advantage of others in any sort of dealing that results in a loss to them. You see, obviously this command forbids outright theft and robbery and burglary of money or of things, whether they are small things or big things, whether they seem unimportant or incredibly important. 
You see, but it's about so much more than that. Think of all the other ways that we take advantage of others, that we cause loss for others. Citizens steal from the government by taking or damaging public property. Citizens, we do it as well by underpaying our taxes, whether you underreport the things that you earn or you over-exaggerate the, the things that you can deduct. We, people make false claims about disability or about Social Security. Employees help themselves to uh, office supplies or use business equipment for personal use or, or simply just pad their expense reports. Uh, the gospel or in the book of James in the New Testament says that employers actually steal from their employees when they don't pay them properly for the work that they do. Borrowers steal from lenders when we buy things on credit that we have no intentions of paying back or ability to pay back. Customers steal from stores, not just by taking things outright, but by, by, uh, by returning things that are used as new, like that dress or the tie that you just wore the once to that wedding or, or to the funeral that you needed to go to, by making the movies we see a double feature, by just sneaking into a second showing. You see, but in it's not just material things that the Bible says that we steal. You see, it's immaterial things as well. We, we steal credit for the work of others. Plagiarism is when we use someone else's ideas without attributing it to them, and we rob someone of their creativity and the credit for the work that they have done. At work, we receive the credit or the praise that others are due, and we shift the blame that we are due onto others. As employees, we steal time and productivity that we owe our employers when we, we don't give our best effort or when we don't put in a full day's work or we simply waste our time surfing the internet or texting our friends or playing games on our phones or, or we call in sick when we're not actually sick because we just feel like we need a day off. We steal people's reputations when we gossip and slander taking someone's good name and harming them in that way. 1 Corinthians 7 says that even withholding sex in marriage is a type of stealing because you're depriving your spouse of something that is rightfully owed them. You see, and if all of this wasn't enough, the Bible says that it's not just people or institutions that we steal from. It's God himself that we do. We steal from God himself. The Bible describes God as the true owner of all things. Psalm 24, 1 says it this way, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And since God is the true owner of all things, to steal anything from anyone is ultimately to steal from God himself. But it's not just that we rob God secondhand by taking things he has given to others. No, we rob him of our time and our talent when we invest those things in lesser things and when we use our time and our talent simply for our own purposes rather than for his. We, we rob God of the praise that his name is due and of the worship that his name is worthy of when we fail to give him credit for the provisions that we see in our lives or for the ways that he is working in our lives or in the lives of others. And we rob God financially when we use the money and possessions and property selfishly rather than giving generously back to him and sharing with others. One commentator writes it this way. He says, everything we have belongs to God. And while he gives us the freedom to use what we need, he also calls us to give generously back for the work of his gospel and to neglect to do so is to rob God. In Malachi chapter three, God tells his people the same thing. He tells them they are robbing him by not giving their tithes and offerings. In the Old Testament, a tithe was considered as 10% of your, of your income. And while that's a useful, sometimes a helpful guide as we think about what it means to give as Christians, the, the new covenant we have through Christ doesn't operate on percentages. You see, the new covenant with Christ has everything to do with the heart. And instead of being defined by percentages, giving in the New Testament is to be defined by regular, sacrificial, and generous giving. You see, we're all called to give. 
and what it looks like, what regular, sacrificial, and generous, those are probably going to be different, mean different things to different people in different uh, stages and different life situations. But those are the things that are called to characterize all of us. The amounts might be different. The percentages might be different. But the heart God calls us to have is the same. You see, and that brings us to what this command reveals about God. You see, because God's commands, they don't just tell us what he wants. They tell us what he is like. You see, the kind of a God who tells his people that you shall not steal. He's not an overbearing tyrant. He's not a, he's not a, he's not a controlling overlord. No, instead what we see over and over throughout the Bible is that the God who calls us not, his people not to steal, is a good and generous and faithful provider. See, this is true of the, the God who rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt and who provided abundantly for them all along their journey throughout the desert. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, God tells us to put our hope in him because he richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Over and over, the Bible talks about God as a generous and faithful provider, not just for spiritual needs, but for physical needs as well of his people. See, the, the, the truth that the Bible reiterates is that everything we have is from God. After collecting gifts built for the temple, uh, used to build the temple in 1 Chronicles 29, King David, he says this, he says, everything comes from you, God, and we have given you only what comes from your hand, for all of it is from you, and all of it belongs to you. See, even the ability to make a living, the, the talents, the opportunities, the skills that we have, the Bible says that those are a gracious gift of God's generous provision for you. See, ultimately, God proves his generosity and his faithfulness, as Romans 8.32 tells us, by not sparing his own son. You see, the passage goes on to say, if God is willing to, to give his own son, won't he graciously give you everything you need? If he's willing not to withhold his own son, will he not graciously give you all that you need? You see, when we steal in any of the ways that we've talked about or others that I haven't even mentioned, what we're doing is we are failing to trust in God's provision. You see, Janie Ortland, uh, she writes this. She says, God comes to us in the Eighth Commandment saying, I love you and delight to provide for you. Live within the distribution system that I have ordained. God loves us by telling us that stealing in all of its forms is rebellion against his providence and provision for us. You see, we try to justify our stealing. We try to minimize the significance of it. We try to minimize the costs or the damages that are done to others. We, we tell ourselves we're just taking from the rich or, or from someone who is evil or just a corporation. They won't notice it or maybe they even deserve it. You see, but no matter how we try to justify it, what we're really doing when we steal is we are rejecting who God has revealed himself to be as a good and faithful and generous provider you see, what we're saying is, God, you are not aware of my needs. I need to watch out for myself. God, God, you aren't good enough or you aren't powerful enough to actually provide for my needs. I need to make sure I provide for myself. God, God, I don't believe that what you have given me is actually enough. I don't believe that you are enough. See, that leads us this morning to how this command confronts us. You see, like all the rest, the Eighth Command confronts both our actions and our motives. It addresses both our hands and our hearts. 
You see, the reality is, is that the reason why we steal is because something other than God is playing the role of God in our lives. We crave something we feel like we couldn't have or we couldn't live without or we couldn't be happy if we didn't have it. And so we steal and take it if we cannot get it other ways. And you see, when you steal material things, it's because you think money or the, or the power or the approval or the comfort or the control that that gives you is essential for life, that if you couldn't live with it, you couldn't live without it, you couldn't be happy without it. And so you're willing to steal it. The same is true as we think of immaterial things. When, when you steal someone's cr credit for the work that someone else has done, you see, what you do is you do it because you crave the attention or the admiration that that credit or that approval, that attention it gives you. J.D. Greer, he writes it this way. He says, stealing ultimately goes back to the fact that most of us are deeply dissatisfied people, not content with our position in life. We want more money, more honor. We wish we were more talented. We want more emotional fulfillment, more sex, more whatever, and so we steal it. Our lives are driven by consumption because we are not satisfied with God himself. See, but it's not just what we do and why we do it in this passage that confronts us. See, it's what we don't do as well. See, Tim Keller says it this way. He says, you have not stopped being a thief when you stop taking for as long as you treat everything you have as your own and as long as you hold on to it for yourself and spend it for yourself, you are still a thief. You're either a thief or a radically generous person and there is nothing in the middle. You see, there are basically three ways we look at our possessions and our things. See, a thief thinks what's yours should be mine, and so I'll take it. An owner thinks what's, what's mine is already mine, and so I will keep it. I'll just hold on to it. And, and that's really the way that most of us look at our things, right? Because most of us are selfish by default. You see, but the call of God's people is to think altogether differently, not to think like a thief or an owner, but rather to think as a steward. A steward thinks what's mine isn't mine. What's mine is actually God's. And so I'm free to share it. You see, one commentator writes it this way. He says, a steward is someone who cares for someone else's property. He is not free to use it however he pleases, but only to manage it in accordance with his master's intentions. This is our situation exactly. For whatever we possess is God's property. And he has given us the sacred trust of looking after it. He said, I need you to hear this this morning. See, if, if what you have is really yours and you're not generous, you're just a stingy person, right? It's just, you're just a stingy person. But if what you have is actually all God's and you aren't generous with it, what happens is you're actually robbing from God because none of that is yours. You're a steward and you're not using the resources that God has given you for his purposes. You see, that's why God talks about how we rob him of, of our finances in those ways. You see, the, the truth is we forget that all we have is not ours, that it's God's. And he is the true owner of all things, that we aren't owners, that we aren't thieves, that we're, that we're just unworthy stewards who have been given God's blessings and his resources to be used for our good, but, but ultimately for God's glory. In the Bible, when the Bible talks about owning things, it talks about owning things not for the purpose of your own blessing, but for the purpose of bringing about God's glory and for using those resources as things unto him. See, the reality is, is that we are guilty of thinking and acting both as thieves and as owners instead of acting and thinking as stewards. Not only do we steal, but we fail to live generously towards God's and towards others with our finances, with our time, with our, with our resources, with our talents. 
You see, like in the rest of God's law, the Eighth Commandment leaves us all utterly condemned. You see, every single one of us stands under the weight of the Eighth Commandment as guilty. Not only have we stolen from others and from God, but we have failed to live generously as his stewards, as he has called us to. You see, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross in place of sinners. Specifically this morning, we think, as we remember that he died on the cross in the place of thieves. Thieves like you and I. You see, the gospel tells us that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. But I need you to hear me on this this morning. Jesus was not just crucified among thieves. He was crucified as one himself on our behalf. Philip Ryken, he writes this, as far as God's justice was concerned, there were really three thieves on crosses that day, two who died for their own crimes, and one who took our sins upon himself. You see, when Christ died, what he did is he died for thieves, like you and like me, so that all, anyone who is a thief who trusts in him, they might be saved. <coughs> see, when you see that, when that clicks in your heart, you see, when you see that you are a thief, that you've not only stolen from others, but you have robbed God as well, when you, when you see that you are really an unworthy steward who has lived as a thief or as an owner, a selfish owner, instead of as a generous steward, when you see that even though all of that is true, that God still did not withhold his son from you, that, that instead he sent his son in love for you, not just to live the life that you should have lived as a generous steward, but to pay the penalty that you should have died for being a, a, a thief and for a selfish owner. You see, when you see that, when you see that Jesus did that on your behalf for you, in spite of you, what happens is that that, that transforms you like nothing else in the world can. You see, the gospel transforms greedy thieves and selfish owners into generous stewards. Janie Ortland again, she writes this, we are to be generous because we have experienced the redemptive generosity of God himself. I need you to hear that again. We are to be generous because we have experienced the redemptive generosity of God himself. We are to be like the God that we serve and to represent him well to others. For if all we have is from him and for his use, then we can hold it loosely and share it as he directs because he is the owner and we are the stewards. You see, when you see how generous God has been to you, what happens is that you will become a radically generous person. When you see how generous God has been to you, you'll become a radically generous person. You see, you see what happens is the, the question will become not what must you give, but, but what can you give. You see, the gospel doesn't call us to a life of poverty. Instead, as one pastor I heard this week talked, he said, the gospel calls us to be a people who live sufficiently and who give generously. You see, when you see, as 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us, that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor, so that in his poverty you might become rich, you see, the idea of giving generously and sacrificially in light of his generosity towards you becomes laughable. You see how much Jesus has given and how no matter how generous you could possibly be, you could not outgive him. You see, the idea of living generously and sacrificially becomes not just a duty or an obligation, but a joyful response. Now, my mother-in-law, she's one of the most generous people I've ever met. She's generous not just with her finances, but with her time and her talents. She is characterized by someone who is generous. You see, and every time you ask her about it, she always says this. She says, the stock market always goes up and down. 
but eternal investments will never lose their value. You see, the way that she thinks about her, her time and her resource and her finances, she's responding to the great king who has given her everything and who has given her a hope and an inheritance that can never fade and never pass. You see, when the gospel takes hold of your heart, you'll start to think and act like that. You see, you'll be able to save wisely and sufficiently, but you'll also be able to give generously. You see, you won't spend extravagantly on yourself. What you'll do is you start to spend extravagantly on Jesus and his kingdom's advancing, not because you have to, but because you long to and you want to. You'll start to love seeing people who are lost come to Jesus more than you love seeing stuff or possessions or more than you love the experiences that money can buy. You see, Scripture says that one of the ways that you can tell if you know Jesus is if you are a joyfully generous person. See, one of the ways you can tell that you know Jesus is if you are a joyfully generous person, not just if you give. It's not just the act that God calls for. He's looking at the heart. You see, you see because what it truly means to convert is that Jesus is your treasure, that he is the thing that satisfies the longings of your heart. And so when you know him, when you see him as the treasure, when, when he is the field that you, are, that you find that's worth selling everything that you might have. You see, you will not only stop stealing, but you will be a radically, joyfully generous person. You see, whose life is spent pouring out for the glory of God and the good of others. I need you to hear me just as Jesus spent his life for yours. You see, when you see God's gracious abundant generosity towards you. That's the thing that motivates your heart. It's the thing that transforms your heart. It's the thing that changes duty and obligation into love and into choice and into, into a gracious response. You see, it's Jesus' radical generosity towards us. That's what we remember every week when we take communion. We're remembering, uh, reminding ourselves of Jesus' body and his blood, which was given for us, which was broken and shed for us. He received the penalty for our greedy thievery and our selfish ownership so that we might receive the graceful reward of being loved children and, and, and honored stewards of his you see, communion, it doesn't change your status or your standing with God. And I need you to hear this. Giving your money to him doesn't change your status or your standing with him either. Instead, our communion, just like it is with our giving, it's a way we respond to Jesus. It's a way in which we say we have encountered your radical generosity towards us, King Jesus. And so we respond to you with a, with a generous, gracious, radical generosity back to you, to your people to your kingdom, to those in need. God, and we do that not because we're trying to get something from you, but because you have given us everything we could possibly have longed for or needed. See, that's what we're doing as we remember communion. We're remembering the radical generosity of God towards us. The bread and the juice are in the back. There's a table on the left and on the right. And you go back and simply you dip the bread in the juice during our time of musical worship after the message here. And as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song, if you have put your trust in Jesus, if by faith you believe the, the promise that Jesus made to the thief on the cross, that, that, he, that through repentance and faith you might have life in him, then whenever you are ready, go back and take communion. Do it as a joyful response to all that Jesus has done for you. 
Not out of guilt, not out of duty, not out of shame, not out of obligation, out of joy. You remember his radical generosity towards you. But if not this morning, if Jesus is not your treasure, if he is not the satisfier of your soul, if he is not yet your forgiver and your leader, if you have not yet received his radical generosity towards you, then I want you to know you are welcome here. This church is for you. These people are for you. This community is for you. But I want to encourage you this morning, come first to Jesus. Receive his radical generosity towards you. Receive the payment that he gave so that you might be forgiven and cleansed. Receive that so that you might be able to take communion as a joyful response unto him. This morning, as we take communion, as we sing, as we talk with God, I want to encourage you, confess the sin of your heart with him. Be honest with God. Be honest with him about the ways in which you steal from him and from others, the way in which not just with your hands but with your heart you do that towards others. Confess those things to him. Ask him to show you what is keeping you from being characterized by a radical generosity towards him. Ask him to give you eyes to see the things that your hearts long for that, that you think satisfy more than he does and ask him to forgive you. You see, the best news of all with the gospel is that when we ask God to forgive us, he will. He promises to. You see, Jesus is in the business of forgiving and renewing thieves and selfish owners like you and like me. You see, there's two thieves that Jesus was crucified between. And one of the thieves, as he died, he called out to Jesus, acknowledging his own sin, Imagine the fact that what he was doing was paying the penalty for his own behavior, for his own thievery, for his, for his own acts. But he also calls out in faith and says, Jesus, remember me as you enter your kingdom. You see, and with his dying breath, Jesus gives him the answer he gives to every thief who comes to him in repentance and faith. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, at the cross, Jesus forgave a thief who trusted in him, who hoped in him, who repented of his own sin. You see, I encourage you this morning to receive the forgiveness that Jesus died that you might have. Let it transform your heart. Let it, let it transform the way you view your things and your stuff. Let it, let it change the way you view your money and your possessions and your time and your talents and your resources. Let, the, let God's generosity towards you fuel a life of generosity towards him. You see, for his good, for your good, for your great joy, but ultimately for his great glory in all things. You see, the invitation of of God's word for us this morning is not just to stop stealing, but is to enter the heart of our abundantly generous God and to be characterized by responding to his abundant, gracious generosity towards you. That's the good news of the gospel. You see, that does something religion can never do. Religion just says, give more, do more, be enough, do more, so that God might be pleased with you, that he might think your sacrifices are enough. But the gospel says that you will never be enough. You can't give enough, you can't do enough, you cannot be enough. But Jesus was enough for you. He gave all that was required. His generosity cannot be matched. And his blessings cannot be outdone. You see, this morning the call is not to respond out of duty or guilt or obligation but to see Jesus as the most generous giver of all and to be called in faith, in love, 
for him, to be generous towards him and towards others. That's the good news of the gospel. It brings life and joy. It brings freedom from, from, the, from, the, from worship of money and stuff and possessions and things. You see, there's a life in responding to the generosity of Jesus that you can find nowhere else. Let's pray. King Jesus, we all come before you this morning. God, as greedy thieves and as selfish owners, God, we recognize the weight of our own sin. God, that we see ourselves. God, we, we, don't, we don't keep this command. God, we fail all the time. God, but you showed us what it means. God, to live generously. God, to not be a taker, but to be a giver. God, and you, you gave us your son. God, you gave us the thing we needed most, the thing of most value and most cost, but you gave it generously to us. because we're trying to get something from you, but because you have given us everything we could ever have needed, that you have abundantly and generously given us all we could have longed for. God, so help us in response to you to be characterized by being radically generous, not simply to stop stealing, but to be a generous people who are responding to a generous God. We love you. Thanks that you love us. Pray these things in your